0: This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Will Zalatoris. We first met the rising golf star back in 2020 as part of our Tony Romo episode, and it turned out, shockingly, he was a big fan of the show. You're the first person that's ever admitted they've uh, watched our interviews before. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So after bursting onto the scene and becoming a consistent major contender, it only made sense that I bug Zalatoris now about coming on the show before he blows up into an enormous star and I really have to harass him.
1: I've watched a lot of your interviews because I'm always wanting to learn. Talking to people about their processes, you know, what makes them great. Ahead, he reflects on that incredible rise. It was kind of a shell shock moment for us. And how planning his engagement may have led to his big break. I needed an outlet and so it was a fun, just kind of a spiritual week in a weird way for me
0: and Romo's back this time making a cameo appearance as we stop by his Dallas home to hear how the quarterback turned broadcaster helped Zalatoris bounce back from rock bottom
2: I'm just like just trust me you're gonna make it and it's just a process and you should enjoy the fact that you haven't made it yet
0: plenty of good stories and jokes between the two friends plus Zalatoris shares a funny moment involving Tiger Woods
1: My buddy actually turned him down. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you?
0: Discusses the controversial Live Golf League and why he's staying loyal to the PGA Tour. If I sat there and said I feel like I'm undercompensated
1: as a PGA Tour pro, what does that say about me? And also reveals how Jordan Spieth motivated him during their teenage years. Just being around someone like that, where I mean, he kicked my teeth
0: in for forever. But first, we go even further back to a young Zalatoris growing up in San Francisco I'm curious if you remember Belmont Oaks Academy, uh, the time you got in trouble and (laughs) had to sit in the corner. I always laugh at it because my mom tells it to
1: me that my pre-K teacher um, had me go sit in the corner and, like, time out because I had never gotten in trouble before. Like, they'd never said anything to me. And so just to know what it felt like and... I probably should have sat in timeout a little longer because I love playing pranks on everyone now.
0: Your parents thought they were going to have a, a second child until two to three years of after having you. How much did you want to have a sibling as a kid?
1: I think growing up I did. Um, but it's kind of funny because being an only child and having two parents that worked really hard um, and wanting to be a kid who's at the golf course, a very solitary thing, like it kind of in a weird way, groomed me for this career. I mean, you sit there with your own thoughts, your own frustrations, you know, there's no one to, you know, kind of give you a hug after you play terrible and, you know, miss out on a Monday qualifier. It's like, you know, get back on the wagon. Um, And so I think, you know, I always wanted a sibling growing up, but my parents, they did such a good job of really just giving me the love and everything that I needed to be successful in whatever I did. And they knew that at a young age that I wanted to play golf. And so they would just, basically dropped me off at you know the Mariner's Point driving range in Foster City, California. And the guys there took care of me. They gave me free balls and I would just hit golf balls all day. I loved it and um, my dad and I would go play on Saturdays together at California Golf Club and we'd play one, two, three, four, and then cut over to number nine and grab an Orange Julius milkshake and go home.
0: Yeah, and what was it about that place that you said it's like a spiritual experience?
1: There's something about that place that you know, I grew up essentially learning how to play golf at a place where there was a shrine for a U.S. Open trophy. And, you know, for Ken Venturi, who won, I believe in 64. And seeing that U.S. Open trophy, seeing Tiger and the boom of golf, um, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And that golf course, there's nothing like it when coming up 18. You know, with the sun setting, you know, you kind of get the California the San Francisco, you know, fog rolling through and it's just, it's gorgeous. But in terms of like me being able to go out there and I was the only kid, I mean, I was, and by the only kid, I mean like the only person under like 35 there. And so I had to hang out with, you know, obviously adults and learn at a young age that, you know, how to play golf and the proper um, etiquette that came with it.
0: What role would you say your parents played in your success.
1: I was a psych major at Wake and so like I've loved understanding development of people. I've been around parents who, you know, the helicopter parents where they've been way too hard on their kids or, you know, don't leave their kids alone and all of a sudden the 15 handicap is telling their son or daughter how to chip and it's like, why would you do that? And my dad has never been to a single one of my golf lessons ever. They. Always made sure that I had the proper structure and had everything that I needed, but it was always my own. You know, we love playing golf together as a family. I mean, my dad plays all the time still. My mom plays here and there, but she's the real athlete in the family. can play twice a year and break 95 both times, but they never pushed it on me. It was always my thing. If anything, both of them were like, hey, you need to take a break. You know, go pick up a baseball bat or something. You know, just, you know, you don't need to hit a million golf balls today or go play. Like, we want you to love it and don't burn out.
0: You said your parents, in a way, though, uh, sacrificed their lives so you could pursue your dreams. Uh, How so? It's just,
1: it's amazing to me some of the sacrifices and the choices that they made for me to be such a good golfer. Both of them gave up a lot of time in, in their jobs to come follow me. His bosses didn't really understand why they were, why my dad was taking off so much time to take an 11-year-old to some of these tournaments. But the fact that he sacrificed really part of the, really the kind of the prime of his working career to just be with me and support me through this journey, um, I didn't take that lightly. I mean, I, I knew, I kinda knew, but the older I get, the more I appreciate it. The fact that they would go through the extra effort though to come to my tournaments and come watch me, you know, or. Take me to this event where you know some other families they might you know put their kid in private housing for the week, and they just wanted to be there with me to support me through it. And um, you know if I played poorly, they patted me on the back, and if I played well, they patted me on the back, and that's all I could ever ask out of them.
0: Your mom says you were practically born into golf. You had a plastic set of clubs <laughs> early, uh, nine years old. The family moves from San Francisco to Dallas. Uh, joined Bent Tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, country club. How much do you think that exposure to talent impacted where you are today? It's huge. Uh,
1: I mean, I'm, I am I I've basically grew up with two world number ones. I mean, between Scotty and Jordan, we've known each other forever. And um, we had some great junior golf battles back in the day. And um, it's been fun being so close with someone and going through the ranks together. Jordan is Probably the most storied junior, I'd say, since Tiger. Um, You know, they're the only two that have won multiple U.S. juniors. And Jordan shot 63 at my home club when he was 14. Um, We were not allowed to take carts, but I remember we somehow were able to get away with it. I think he was six under for his first seven holes and then, like, honestly fell asleep on the back nine. I think he made a couple bogeys and shot 63 at 14. And I brought that up to him the other day, actually. And he was like, really? I don't remember that. And I'm like, well, I do. So thanks. Yeah, really appreciate that. But just being around someone like that where, I mean, he kicked my teeth in for forever. I mean, are you thinking at the time, like,
0: I just want to kick this guy's ass someday?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I'd beat him in singular rounds, but I'd never beaten him in a tournament. I mean, the first time I actually beat him in a tournament was the 2020 U.S. Open. I mean, that's kind of a long time to be losing to someone, if you think about it. I never look for, you know, oh, I beat this guy, I beat that guy, but I just remember looking at it and like, I think that's the first time I've ever beat Jordan. And like, it literally took me 14 years to
0: do it, so. You think it bothered him? No, because I think he's doing all right. What did uh, watching Jordan teach you? Because he's, what, like three years? Yeah, he's,
1: uh, he's three years older, but he was just so um, confident and mature in what he was doing. You know, like everything he was doing, he thought he was right. And I didn't, don't mean that as saying like being a know-it-all. He just had so much confidence of, hey, this is why I play this shot this way, or this is why I do it that way. And to be 12, 13, 14 and practically be a touring professional, I mean, that's why at 16 he came out and almost won the Byron Nelson. Just seeing someone who's so mature beyond his years, um, and that was the bar. I mean, it absolutely made me better and made Scotty better too. It
0: motivated you how?
1: You know, he basically set the bar with winning his two U.S. Juniors. Um, you know, then Scotty won one, then I won one. Um, you know, the next stepping stone was the amateur level. He won a bunch as an amateur, Scotty won a bunch as an amateur. I won a decent amount and He just set the bar so high so fast, you know, if this is what he's doing and I know that I can beat him, then I need to just keep doing what I'm doing and eventually I'll be at that level with him. And so seeing what Jordan did in 15 and seeing that rise gave Scotty and I the belief that we can do it. And obviously Scotty's doing it this year and um, I know that my time will come too.
0: So over a year and a half period, you go from 5'4", 140 pounds, to one and 145 pounds, how does it impact you? I, I mean, I struggled. Um, you know, your motor skills go through, you know,
1: hell and back to basically, you know, you get used to playing with a certain set of clubs, and now you're playing completely new clubs. And um, not to mention you're young and dumb and don't really know how to, you know, not mature enough to handle the struggles. And so, um, you know, I was pretty heavily recruited young, like probably – getting my first letters at like 13. From about 15 to 17, I struggled pretty mightily. Um, Some college coaches, you know, one college coach told me that, you know, hey, you can get into school first and you can walk on here. And I'm like, well, that kind of sucks. And then the second one, he asked what my goals were as a professional golfer. I just said, I don't know, like, you know, maybe win the U.S. Junior and, you know, go to play D1 golf and, play P.J. Tour someday, and I remember him telling me, well, all of my guys walking in here, I want them to be world number one, and obviously
0: you don't have the same attitude that I want my guys to have. And Stanford was, correct me if I'm wrong, like the place you always wanted to go. Yeah, no,
1: I I mean, I was, um, when basically they kind of stopped recruiting me, um, it was kind of a, a low point. You know, offers are starting to dry up a little bit, and then Jerry Haas comes along and offers me the Arnold Palmer scholarship to go to Wake Forest. How did that belief in you at that time impact you? It meant an incredible amount because all I was told was no for two years, basically. And then finally, when someone comes along and says, you're our guy, um, it meant a lot. I mean, it, it started to get me to kind of believe in myself again, and I won uh, the U.S. Junior, the Trans Miss, and the Texas State Amateur after I had signed my national letter of intent. Most people, when they sign their national letter of intent, they've already proven themselves and if anything, I signed my national letter of intent and then
0: proved myself. Everybody I talked to close to you told me that year and a half after you left college was the hardest period of your life. Um, what made it that way for you? You know,
1: you leave early because I wanted that full year to get all of my starts, you know, kind of cut my teeth as opposed to basically having a month and a half blitz and having to, you know, catch fire in a bottle. And, you know, when you're missing Monday qualifiers by four, five, six, you know, when you're not making any money and you're on your own, I mean, it's, it's just not fun at all.
0: I think it was December 18 or January 19 after you don't qualify for Q school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have this pretty important meeting mm-hmm. with your team. Set the scene and explain what's talked about?
1: Yeah, so basically, at the end of every year, we kind of do a year in review. It was like, okay, this is rock bottom. Like, you need to go do anything you can do. I kind of had to eat the humble pie and, you know, go play in some mini tour events where you finish, you know, third and you make 600 bucks and you're like, oh, well, got money to go home with.
0: I'm curious uh, if your mom has ever brought this up to you because when I was talking to her, she told me as a parent, you wondered when is he going to realize maybe this isn't going to happen? You start to wonder how are you going to support him in this realization?
1: Yeah, it's tough. I mean, especially where I had had so much success for so long and there's no guarantee that you'll ever get to that next level. I mean, it doesn't matter how hard you work. I mean, it's just, that's just part of it. How about mentally?
0: what your single lowest point was during that period?
1: I think probably the worst was I missed a qualifier in Kansas City and remember just sitting in an airport hotel and just basically wondering if, you know, hey, I mean, I've done, I'm like 0 for 25 at this point. Like, am I cut out for this? Depressed? No, I mean, because it's still just golf. I think the part where for me, where I'm I'm probably a little sick in the head would be that my biggest moments have come after my lowest of lows. And it happened multiple times throughout my golf career. Mm-hmm. And I knew that like, hey, this is, I'm at rock bottom with my golf game. Like it can only get better from here.
0: Do you talk to anybody about it then? Or do you internalize that? Tony
1: the most. Okay. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. he, Romo. yeah. I mean, yeah. Romo the most. I mean, I'm beyond lucky to call him a you know, a brother figure to me. I mean, I'm number 12 in the world or 13 in the world in golf. Like that doesn't even sniff what it's like being the quarterback of Dallas Cowboys. You know, the part that's so funny is I see a lot of me in him and I know that he sees a lot of, he sees the same. I can ask him some of the most particular questions about his career and the little minute details of like, hey, did you have any game day traditions? And it was funny how both him and I had a lot of the same things, but for a guy who's as analytical as it it gets, he cracks me up at how he has his nuances that are just so funny. I mean, I think I've seen him wear the same shirt like six out of the last 10 days type (laughs) thing. But that's just him. I mean, Tony's Tony, he's a mad scientist.
0: And that relationship meant what to you during those kind of toughest days? Uh, It's invaluable. We now take you across Dallas to the home of NFL broadcaster and former quarterback Tony Romo to get his perspective on helping Zalatoris through this difficult time. I was talking to his mom, uh, Kathy, uh, yesterday, and she said, I give Tony a lot of credit for building Will's self-confidence and self-belief. How aware were you of that?
1: It's nice you didn't say arrogance. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) I think I built his arrogance. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, Yeah, I think, I mean, she's been really nice with that. I think Will has always been very confident. I think the big thing is when I talk to someone who's younger, not Will like that anymore, but like when I first do, if he does something well, I'm going to tell him. And just to let him know, like, to help give him confidence to be like, trust me, you're hitting the ball as good as any of those guys out there. Those go a long way for you mentally to feel comfortable in those environments when normally you're not comfortable.
1: My first year as a pro, it was kind of slow. I remember actually we were sitting right here one night and just kind of talking about, you know, I was just like, man, this is this is hard. He kind of just put things in perspective of like, just enjoy how simple your life is right now. And I promise you, like you work hard enough, like it'll come.
2: He reminds me like just his mindset, right? Of like, it's why we get along so well. I mean, he's a, he's a great guy. He's almost as nice as me. Um, <laughs> But he's sitting there, and I know that time period in my life. And when I was then, you're so stressed out. It's like your whole life is on the line. And I'm just like, just trust me. You're going to make it, and it's just a process. And you should enjoy the fact that you haven't made it yet. Because truly, right now, you get to fail big over and over again, and you don't have to do it in front of the world's eyes yet. He
1: kind of gave me all the advice leading into it. You know, make sure you shut your phone off at your first masters because everyone's going to get a hold of you. And I didn't look at my phone all week, and all of a sudden I'm like, dang, I need to start doing that at every event. <laughs> you know, but it, it's just the little things that seeing someone who's been successful in another craft and also seeing how he even approaches the game towards his own game
0: taught me a lot. What did you say to him going into the 21 masters? His fiance, Caitlin, said it was like you're, you know, foreshadowing <sighs> like you do
2: in NFL games.
1: Yeah, I remember it's it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I think I just said, you're gonna go there as Will Zalatoris on Thursday and you're gonna come back a different person like on Monday.
1: And that was the first kind of real moment for me where it was like kind of the national attention. Yeah. You kind of go from, hey, you know, this is really cool to be here to all of a sudden, okay, now you're one of the top, go- you know, top 50 guys in the world. And it was a big adjustment period in general.
0: So tell about these money games at Merido
2: you guys would play. <laughs> We would play for a dollar or two on the front nine, two or three on the back. I think. Yeah, something like that.
0: Oh, <laughs> you, you actually, you actually said um, putting to win like a couple grand off Romo or Spieth was more nerve wracking to you than like putting well, to win the Masters. I right? would say that
1: the fact that he's trying to take money out of my pocket yeah. gets me going more than a random finishing twenty. You know, yeah. oh, you got this putt to finish eighth versus fifth, and yeah. I'm like, I don't. I mean, I care, but I don't care. Like, it's not it's about not the good. money. It's more about like, he's taking it's, something it's, from me. Yeah,
2: it's not like, I create that environment almost on purpose, but I think it's more fun to make it competitive. So the more competitive it is, we're all gonna improve or you're not gonna, and you're gonna get your butt kicked over and over, so. I mean, you
1: can't simulate like that pressure in practice. Yeah. And so that's, that was our version of it. And for me, it's been great. Cause I mean, like I said, <clears throat> do that for a couple months in the off season and it's like, I'm ready to go. It's not like we were trying to kill each other to go broke, but it mm-hmm. was like we're trying, I was, to, I was trying yeah, to take
2: it yeah, I know, from it. right? make but, him have to move in the basement and give me half of his future earnings. Yeah, how's Medicaid going?
0: On a scale from one to ten, you drank his obsession with golf, a what?
1: Uh, Loving. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's pretty, I think my favorite moments with him is when he's trying to figure out something in his golf swing and we're playing a game and he's sitting in the cart looking at like Tiger videos or Hogan videos, like trying to figure it out in the middle of the round. And I'm like, I I think it's unbelievable. Like, I laugh at it.
0: What makes you say if you had gotten your PGA Tour card right away, that would have been the worst thing that could have happened to you?
1: I think I, I was not mature enough to handle the week in, week out stresses of, I didn't know my routines. I would have practiced and overworked to a point where I would have just gotten in my own way. And I think when I had that year and a half of corn Ferry where it was kind of teaching me how to play a full schedule, um, it made me ready for the next level. And it's a brutally painful, slow process, but at the same time, we're also talking about it, how I went from there to here in two years. I laugh at how now I get asked in, in the media if I'm worried about finishing or having the career runner-up Grand Slam and majors. I'm like, I
0: haven't even played 10 majors yet. Notable moments from your career. You mentioned finishing sixth in the U.S. Open. How is that a turning point for you? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I
1: we had COVID. I go from thinking I'm going to have one year on the corn ferry to now it turns into two because they do a super season of the two years. And then, um, you know... I then get lucky in the fact that the USGA gave the top 10 on the Corn Ferry points list a spot in that year's US Open, which I would not have tried to qualify in um, because it would have taken a week away from the Corn Ferry schedule, which every point matters to get your PGA Tour cards. I made a really nice run for the rest of the year and I had made enough points that I had locked up my card for the PGA Tour a year in advance. And so I was able to take a week off and go play in the U.S. Open and finish sixth there, which top tens gets you into the next week. Hopped on a plane to go to Dominican Republic and finished eighth. And two weeks later, finished fifth at uh, at Vegas and needed like one more cut made to get my PGA Tour card. So literally within a two-and-a-half-month span, I go from I'm going to have two years on the Corn Ferry Tour to basically being on the PGA Tour. So that U.S. Open was a starter for everything that's happened to me on the PGA Tour. It was validating. It absolutely was. I'd made one cut on the PGA Tour in like nine tries to that point. It was like, I hadn't had any reason to know that I'm gonna come out and be successful, let alone in a US Open. And then Masters rolls around and that's the biggest off course, life-changing moment for me, for sure.
0: And you qualify for that 2021 Masters pretty much last minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, describe that Sunday. I, I was pretty emotional in the morning,
1: just the gravity of the fact that a year and a half before I basically didn't have status anywhere and then now I have a chance to win the Masters was pretty, kind of hit me. I'd teared up a little bit, um, kind of needed a moment to myself that Sunday. I went out that last day and just said, I, I, I don't want any regrets. Let's just, let's do everything we can do and Hit every golf shot like it's your life depends on it and had a great week and came up one short.
0: What do you remember from the standing ovation?
1: Just that in the moment, I thought it was normal. And then when Corey Connors and his caddy walked off the green and people were still standing up and clapping and saying my name, I was like, this is not normal. Um, Being the underdog for the week and everyone feeling the people root for me on that Sunday is something I'll never forget. Um, it, it was as emotional throughout, emotional
0: of a round as I think I've ever played. I understand those first few months after Augusta were hard.
1: Yeah, it just it was different. I mean, you go from kind of having this general anonymity of like, oh, you know, it's this kid who's playing well to, um, you know, Adam Sandler tweeting out, you know, Mr. Gilmore's proud of you and all that. And, you know, Mr. You know, I get Gilmore's caddy and get comments like that week in, week out now. And Owen Wilson and um, I can't even think of who else. It just yeah. happens so fast. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's if it was more, you know, if it took me a year or two of just that gentle progression, it would have been way easier. Right. But it taught me a lot. You know, I had started putting a lot of pressure on myself to try to get that first win or try to make the Ryder Cup team and you know prior to the Masters it was just go play golf. Jordan Spieth told me this a long time ago he said like the last thing you want to do in the middle of a major is turn on Golf Channel because all of a sudden you're going to be sitting there thinking about what other people are saying or you know watching other people it's like you need time to decompress.
0: Second in the Masters PGA Championship U.S. Open Uh, how do you handle that?
1: It's motivating I you know i I've got a lot of silver medals hanging around the house that I'm, will happily put into storage with, you know, replace them with gold ones.
0: And is it like initially, especially given the progression over the past couple of years, like, oh my God, I can't believe I got second. And does it go from like, elation to now that you've gotten second a couple times, disappointment?
1: The masters of 21 was, so life-changing and so amazing that that one is probably the most fun. Um, The PGA stung because I was that close. Um, You know, he played a perfect three holes in the playoff and I happened to just not make birdie on one of the easier holes and, you know, he earned it. We had no
0: problem with that. Tell about the text you sent to your coach the night of the PGA Championship after you lost the playoff.
1: Yeah, I think I told Josh and Troy, like, I actually believe I can win majors now. And I always, you can think it and you can think it in your mind and work towards it. But now it's like, I'm going to win one. Like, I firmly believe to my soul that I will win one. And coming back out in the U.S. Open, like, I played great. Unfortunately, I've been, you know, I'm. What four shots from being over 12 rounds from being a three-time major champion like you know, we're that close So yeah, it's very frustrating. There's no question about that But at the same time, I know that if we keep doing what we're doing, it'll happen live golf Why
0: did decide against playing in it
1: if you look at the guys that have gone and I I've got no problem with the guys going I mean everyone can make their own decisions no disrespect to them at all but you know a lot of them are older or they've been injured or you know they've been on the road for 20 plus years they don't want to do it anymore and they want to play for another couple more years and you know get a nice nest egg and and call the quits i've never done this for money ever if the u.s open had a hundred thousand dollar purse i'd still show up to the u.s open you know i don't know what it was this year it was like 17 million or something outrageous. And you know, I'm in this to go in a major, like that's my career goal. So if Liv doesn't have world golf ranking points right now, all of a sudden everything, or I will start falling down the list. Now I lose my chances of playing in a major championship. I'm only 25, but I've chased it for 20 years. You know, I, I can't, there's no amount of money that can, that I would give to trade that for a trophy. There's no amount of money to me that can make me give up on my dreams, especially when I have the amount of silver medals I got hanging around my house now. I'll happily trade them all in for one win. I get it that, you know, I could go and play live right now and, and you know- get, Were you approached? Yeah, everyone was. Okay. Yeah, I mean, every everyone was approached or offered, you know, what, for all I know. What's that
0: outreach like?
1: I, it went to my agent, thank yeah. God. Um, if I read it, I or if I got the email, I probably would have just thought it was a scam or something, and deleted it. The moral, ethical side of it is obviously very tricky, and that's why a lot of us just want to leave it, leave it yeah. be, and just don't want any part of it. The big battle right now is whether you know if we are independent contractors. Why can't we do both? Um, and why I, can't you? I don't know. That's for the courts to decide. That's not for me to decide. But
0: what's your gut tell you?
1: Um, I don't know, man. I haven't graduated college yet. I don't know the answer. Um, My guess is that we'll probably be able to do both. I'm still through and through PGA Tour, though. There's certain events that you want to win, you know, because there's so much history to them. And if guys feel like they've been underpaid on tour or whatever it is that, that frustrates them, like most of the guys that have gone have made $25 million. And I get it that maybe you, you know, proportionally, sure, we can always fight for bigger purses, but... You know, that's what people ask me is they said, well, should you be a prime candidate to go to live because of the situation you had on your first year on the PGA Tour where you couldn't be a part of the FedEx Cup playoffs? And I said, guys, I haven't won yet and I've made over $10 million on tour. If I sat there and said, I feel like I'm undercompensated as a PGA Tour pro, what does that say about me? The money that these guys are are given right now, it's just more money. It's not life-changing money, it's just more. There's a difference in that level. You know and on the PGA Tour the strength of fields now are incredible and you got to blame Tiger for that because all of us come out you know thinking that we could win the Masters at 21. If and decided to go, go Monday qualify for a tournament you can go Monday qualify in a PGA Tour event and you can go win and earn your way there and yeah it's merit-based to play and live because obviously you have to earn your right to make that amount of money but it's the same people competing against each other Day in, day out, and then unless you're able to do both and you're able to have a mixed bag of people, you know, they're basically their competition pool is going to stay the same. But it, it's just a, it's a, it's sad because it dominates a lot of the the conversations right now on tour. Whereas there's so much good going on. It's been a unique time, especially being a player advisory council member, where I'm sitting in conversations that are so far above my pay grade, considering that. Again, two years ago, I wasn't even, didn't have status on any PJ Tour
0: sanctioned tour. This period of upheaval could be a net positive if it forces what changes in professional golf. It's going
1: to be a, a positive. I mean, um, it's going to be more marketing dollars for younger guys. Um, you know, the top guys, basically, you know, they kind of get their veteran um, numbers where maybe they're not producing as much but they still get paid off the golf course very handsomely on top of that as well fedex has put in they've doubled what they've put in for our player bonuses at the end of the year Um, and purses are going to be going up to basically where the average is going to be about 17 to 19 million and so that's why to me you know i couldn't be happier with what's going to happen with the tour over the next few years we looked at the projections and in 2025 you might make $3 million and not keep your card. How can you How can you argue with being underpaid at that point? I think that the more and more that we talk in terms of how we can make the PGA Tour better, the more and more transparent it is to me that it's the best job in the world. We're going to be in a better place and be in a really, really good place.
0: And ultimately the only way this benefits the fan is if the two tours can Coexist. Sure.
1: I think the fan engagement side is something that the tour has needed to do a better job of for a long time. I think that's basically where Liv's business model has come from. The biggest argument right now is that, well, there might be too much downtime between shots, and look at what's going on with Liv where they're going boom, 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 boom. Well, okay, let's sit down and talk about this. These are not things that, you know, that are blow up your career and go to live type problems at all. And so that's why it's a I love talking about it. I love taking different perspectives from other people um, because I I know my reasons why I don't want to why I won't do it. But you know, if if they get World Golf Ranking points, and um, you know, let's say the top forty eight players in the world are playing, I'd be doing myself a disservice of you know not playing against the best players in the world. But at the same time like i said i will never jeopardize my pj tour membership and jeopardize the the majors for first and foremost
0: best and worst financial decision you've made
1: i've got a funny one that is it's not bad but it's uh (laughs) i got offered to play in a tournament in europe and they were going to give me an allowance for a car and it's the same week as memorial and that's Jack Nicklaus's tournament. You can't miss Jack Nicklaus's tournament. And um, I ended up getting hurt and having to take them the week off. And um, I ended up buying the car I probably would have gotten, <laughs> um, but it was. I worked out a deal, and it was fine. It's not like I'm, you know, went out and bought a plane that doesn't fly or anything like that, or something stupid. But. Um, best one I've ever done. I mean, I think we've had one that has been a lot of fun with, uh, biodegradable plastic where, or, you know, um, we make, it's called plant switch. We basically take, um, make containers, cups, straws, everything out of agave. And that's, they've done really well. I don't have an end goal with that. Like, it's just more of like the joy of being able to spend time with people. And it's not about the money part. It's just more of the you know learning I guess.
0: And continuing education.
1: Yeah I, and which is hilarious that obviously I left early and all I want to do is learn but um but I'd like I said I'll get that done. Six credits to go. Yeah all electives so underwater basket weaving and fire prevention and all that garbage that's all I need to do but yeah I mean I it, you question if you made the right decision or not all of a sudden within a year I'm you know, finishing six in the US Open. And I was planning on graduating that fall and all of a sudden I've been a little busy for the last year and a half. And you're gonna
0: finish that up when?
1: Definitely not this fall between the DP World Tour and the PGA Tour, getting married, but I'll probably, I'm gonna guess I'm gonna knock it out with our new schedule change next fall. So if I I don't get it done next time I see it, I'm sure I'll hear about it.
0: How did you learn to manage money? And how has that benefited you?
1: I mean, I'm still learning. You know, it's kind of funny because a lot of finance people will play golf for fun and obviously do finance for work. And I play golf for work and do finance stuff for fun just because I get to spend time being around so many amazing, cool people and very successful business people and get to pick their brains and just say, hey, you know, what do you do? Like, how do you obviously I know that obviously you're a hedge fund guy or whatever it is, but. What is your process? I don't have enough time, nor will I ever have enough time to just solely, you know, focus on investments. But at the same time, you never know who you're going to meet along the way, and you know what
0: it might lead to. Anything that your parents taught you, like growing up, that impacts decisions yeah, you make I mean, financially today? We're not, you know, the
1: multi-millionaires of the world, but we definitely, you know, we're somewhere upper middle class. Yeah. But it always felt like to me. We had enough money where we couldn't live in incredible excess, but we also were able to afford the necessities, and I think that financial responsibility is how I try to live my life to this day where, you know, most kids, if you have, you know, shoot them out of a cannon like what's happened with me over the last couple of years, you know, who knows the choices that they've made, but, you know, my first check that I got, I bought a track man. Like, I needed to get better with my wedges. Like, to hefty investment, but you know, like 25 grand at the time or whatever it was like, I'm giving up a lot of my paycheck for something that I hope works out. Um, but I, anything else, it's like, I just don't care.
0: Before you found success, uh, what advice or methods did you use to spend wisely or save money?
1: Something that I loved about Gronkowski was he lives off of his endorsement money and saves all of his NFL contracts. Um, I don't live by that strictly, but I am i try to do a really good job of that. I think that what I do off the golf course allows me to live very comfortably and everything that I make on the golf course is you know, almost set for retirement. If you think of all the money that we make, there's no guarantee that I'm going to play for the next 10, 12 years. We cook in six, probably on average, six and a half nights a week. Caitlin and I are bad about going out on dates now. Like We need to be better about going out on dates, but it's just... We just like cooking in and we just like being normal people.
0: You guys apparently lived 10 minutes apart uh, growing up, uh, but you never met here. Uh, Explain how you guys met.
1: Yeah, um, psychology class. She sat right behind me, and it was kind of funny because I ended up missing a couple weeks. And so I asked for some notes, and all of a sudden we were going on our first date. Didn't really do a whole lot of studying. I don't think I'd. I may have gotten the notes from her, but I definitely didn't look at them.
0: You guys did, I guess, long distance for a year and a half, and that was the period where uh, you left Wake a semester early. She went to grad school. Um, Explain this to me. Uh, You would FaceTime her nightly just to watch her study?
1: Well, hi well, thanks for making it sound creepy. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, she would be studying and I'd be on the road by myself at some you know random town. That was the part that was hardest coming up through the Monday qualifiers was the fact that you're not with people that you know. It's not like it's a tournament where you're there for a full week. You're carrying your own bag, you're booking your own travel, you're doing you know, catching the cheaper flight. Going through Priceline, trying to find a, a room last minute or whatever if you made it for the week, um,
0: but it was just kind of our way of staying connected. She said that year and a half apart, long distance was great for you guys. Um, how so?
1: I was able to give 110% to my craft, and she was able to give 110% to grad school. Um, you know, so we let it. We lived our our lives during the day, but then in the evenings we'd catch up and see how things were going and. Um, I think it really helped us with our communication. It was a long year and a half, obviously, for me on the golf course, but she definitely helped me get through it. So how'd you propose? I laughed a lot at Augusta because I proposed two weeks after, but I had had the ring, I believe I got it the Friday before Augusta and put it in the safety deposit box. And I'm like, w- why am I having this sit in here? Like, why am I gonna wait till July?
0: Because you you weren't gonna do it till her birthday.
1: Right, so the week of Augusta I was actually planning how I was going to get engaged to her and called a couple of her friends and we decided to go down to Austin and um, took her for a walk down one of the trails on the river and surprised her with some of her friends and proposed in obviously our favorite city. Um, How were the nerves? I had a speech but it did not come out exactly how I was planning. I think I, I Had like my little three or four things I wanted to say and just said them in a complete random order She said yes and then that was all I needed to hear So
0: so some of those close to you said they think the reason why you did so well at the masters in 21 is Because actually Well, like your mind was also focused on planning this engagement I needed an outlet. You know, I needed something.
1: Because if I sat there and was thinking about, oh, I'm in the last group of my first major or blah, 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 or, you know, first master's, you know, all of a sudden I'm just sitting there thinking about it. And so it was a fun, just kind of a spiritual week in a weird way for me because it's, I'm in Enjoying the history of being a golf nerd and just, you know, trying to soak up being at Augusta, but then I'm also, you know, calling friends, trying to figure out how we're all gonna meet down in Austin in two weeks. It was kinda nice to have some normality with your friends after a week where you go from being some kid who's just playing well in golf till all of a sudden, oh, it's that happy Gilmore looking kid who's played well in the Masters, you know, getting recognized in coffee shops and whatnot, you know, for that first couple months was interesting. I think the thing that was different for us was like People Magazine picked up our engagement. And a month prior to that, you know, nobody knew who I was, let alone in the golf world, people didn't really know who I was. It was kind of a shell
0: shock moment for us. She says she can tell how your week's going by your body language, just even by watching you, I think on TV.
1: It's kind of funny because I think like the one thing that I've worked on really hard is trying to make it look like I'm either, whether I'm six under or six over, just trying to look the same. So even though I might be kind of a goof in some of the media press conferences and whatnot that I have, like I'm, I look very boring out there. Caitlin can pick up on even like before around, like how I'm feeling internally, you know, where it's, you know, fine has a lot of meanings whenever I say I'm fine, but she can pick up on it. I never wanted our relationship or anything that we do You know, together, I didn't want to sit there and talk about golf because it's like I have the most selfish job in the world. I'm gone 35 weeks a year, basically. She's really been a sports psychologist over this past year and an unpaid member of the team. How specifically? We talked a lot before the PGA this year, um, before I lost in the playoff to um, Justin Thomas. I was pretty frustrated with where I was. I was working way too hard, just over practicing, over trying. And then finally, Wednesday night before the tournament, she just said like, hey, look, you've got your card locked up for the rest of the year. Like, you, This is kind of gravy. Just go play. And uh, obviously it led to a great week. And so having someone, like I said, who's been there from the start, um, She's been a rock for a while, but especially this past year where our lives have changed so much. It's been, she's been invaluable.
0: Why will you give yourself things to think about to take your mind off golf? I need that time
1: away to just, you know, chill out, relax, you know, read a book, watch a movie with Caitlin, take our dog for a walk, just do something different, you know, plan an engagement in the middle of the masters.
0: I understand you'll go down these rabbit holes on Google too. (laughs)
1: Yeah, obviously, it sounds like Caitlin gave you that one. Caitlin laughs at me where it's like, yeah, I think I'll teach myself how to play chess. And she's like, what
0: are you doing? I'm told that you don't want to be one of these guys that plays professional golf forever. Uh, why not? You know,
1: I I love the game more than anything on Earth. Like, I I have I, I have a flat-out addiction. I definitely will play competitive golf as long as I can, but I think I just don't want to be the FaceTime dad where my kids are growing up and I'm missing everything that they have until they're five or six or even later. I just don't want to miss my kids growing up. Like that's to me the main motivation out of everything.
0: That's it for the sit down portion. The interview then continued in our car ride. Deep down, what are your goals? I've
1: never looked for really more than three to five years out, but I mean, I think the next one obviously is to win on tour and win a major. Um, and then from there, reassess. I've had one goal it hasn't been, like, the big, grandiose, long-term, like, once I do this, I'm done. You know, it's like, okay, the next one's to win a major.
0: Going down is one of the greatest ever? Are those the sorts of goals that
1: I mean, do it's, it's it? subjective. I mean, that part, too. I mean, Tiger's won 82 times on tour, and you can still make the argument that Jack Nicklaus is the greatest player of all time. Who do you think is? Tiger's dominance is tough to argue against. I mean, it's it's different eras, and they're the first ones to say it too. I mean, the fact that I can't even define what being the greatest player ever is, and it's like, why would I, you know, like, and some guys would say, like, well, it's, you know, make it convincing, like win more than 82 times and win 18 majors. I'm like, it's a little hard to do now. That's not to discredit any of the guys that came before us. It's just that, I mean, 15 years ago, not everyone had trainers. Like, not everyone had sports psychologists. Most people just had one coach. But now it's like, you know, you hop in the gym and the tr- or hop in the trailer on the PGA Tour and there's you struggle for space because there's 15 guys in there. Tiger's built like a tight end. I mean, he's enormous. I mean, Tiger literally is, like, his upper body is, uh, like, he's just a massive human. And no one's built like that out there on tour. Like, he's the one. I, I would love to play with Tiger at least once before he's done done. Yeah. Just to do it. And I know that that would be an amazing experience because even at the PGA, like I played in front of him the first two days, we had more people with us because the people would come up to our group to follow us so they, they could get a better look when Tiger rolls through <laughs> than I was in the final group on Saturday. What's the likelihood you get to play with him? I mean, that's that's it. that's up to him i mean i think obviously you know the part that amazes me is that he just has such a hard time walking but man he can still play some good golf like tiger could get a cart if he wants to but you know he's never going to take it you know because that's who he is yeah and it's like selfishly i'm like dude get in the cart i'm going to play with you <laughs> like you know i want to see you in your 50. you know i want to see you when you're 50 you've proven people wrong countless times like even coming back from injuries and i'm like Get in the damn cart. It's amazing to see, like, people say, like, oh, yeah, the tiger effects. Like, he is the needle. He doesn't move the needle, you know? And right. then it's like, OK, yeah, I get, I get it. And then all of a sudden, I see it in person for the first time while I'm playing. And I'm like, oh,
0: my gosh. Like, it, it's just it's insane. Do you have his number where you could just text him and ask to play? No, I don't. Um, you know, Is that something you'd even feel comfortable doing if you had his numbers?
1: Yeah, I probably would. I, You know, just... I mean, I know Tony has it, and he's just one of those guys where it's like... I never want to pry his space because I just have so much respect for how much he did, even for me, and he doesn't even know me, that it's just like... Like, I was actually laughing at the PGA this year because he's standing on the tee, and he didn't have a... Wasn't playing with anybody. And I was going to play with another buddy. And... He, Tiger was staying on the team and said, Hey, do you guys want to go? I'm like, You want to come? <laughs> like, I didn't say it, but I was like, Okay, yeah, you Tiger tells me to go. I'm going. I got it. Do you regret not saying do you want to come? Yeah, I mean, it's just, I think um, my buddy actually turned up down. I'm like, What the hell is wrong with you? Like, how can you <laughs> say, like, like I'm sorry, like hey, I appreciate you trying to stick with me and like, you know, play with me, but I gotta be honest with you, the feeling's not mutual.
0: <laughs> so if you asked Tony for his number, do you think he'd give it to you? I think what I would
1: probably do is I would tell Tony, Hey, we're both playing the same week. If you wouldn't mind texting Tiger to play, and then if Tiger asked for my number, he'd ask for it. I definitely wouldn't be like, Hey, give me Tiger Woods' number. He'd be nope. like he'd be like uh, I'm going to ask Tiger first. Or it would be like, you idiot, you're doing it wrong. I'm like, thank you, Tony. It's kind of fun because, you know, like, at the British, or I guess the Open Championship, Tiger came by and he, like, you know, like, smacked him on the backside and was like, hey, great playing, buddy. And I'm like, or no, he said, great playing Willie. And I'm like, oh, he, yeah, that's him. Yeah,
0: I know him. What will you do when you stop playing professionally?
1: I probably want to do something, you know, like coaching, but, you know, that's a long,
0: long time down the road. Okay, but so stuff things still in the sport, not like running your own yeah, investment fund. Yeah, exactly. Something. Like it can't be that fun if all of them
1: are asking me about golf. <laughs> but I mean, for me, it's like, I've spent my whole life with this game and, you know, it even goes to this whole conversation that we've had about live. is like, one of my favorite things that Rory McElroy said was, the game doesn't belong to anyone. It doesn't belong to our era, it doesn't belong to the future era, it doesn't belong to the guys before us. Like, it's our job to just make sure that we just make it the best thing we can possible. If Rory was born in the United States, I'd vote him for president, because he's just, he's one of the most intelligent, well-spoken, introspective people I've ever met. I loved him growing up, watching him play, but now that I've gotten to know him and see how he's been such a good you know, like you said, a custodian of the game, like, he's just, it's so cool. Like, we're lucky to have a guy like that around. Are you guys close? I mean, I, enough that I, you know, spend a little time and talk to him here or there, like, see him in player dining, but, like, we haven't played together yet, but he's just, I'm being on the player advisory council and seeing his questions and seeing how just brilliant he is when it comes to looking out for the P J Tour with everything that's gone on, like, he's just, I mean, he didn't go to college because he didn't need to, um, successful at a very young age, had all the attention on him at a very young age, kind of like Tiger, came out on fire, and then goes to the downspurt, digs himself back out of it, comes back and wins another FedEx Cup. I mean, it's like, and not to mention he's one of the most level-headed, like, like I said, like he just of the general interest. Like I guarantee you 75% of the guys on tour probably look at what Rory says and then they just try to put it in their own words just because it's just so well thought out and well said. So he's always got my vote.
0: So before uh, I knew Romo was gonna be coming out for this, I had him tape something. Just wanna play it for you.
2: This message is for Will Zalatorrez. If he hasn't won eight Masters yet four US Opens, Three British, two PGAs. Then he's still probably doing this interview with Graham Bensinger. <laughs> because after he does that, I'm pretty sure he won't, because he'll turn into Tiger Woods. You know, he's got a little bit of that personality. But uh, well, I just want to say, great job, buddy. And I can't believe that you you've actually made it. You're doing a Graham Bensinger interview. Nothing better in this world. That means that you're actually arrived. Oh so. my
1: God, he's. <laughs> Some of the voicemails that he leaves me are just so funny. Like, for a guy who's so smart and so analytic, like, he could be a 14-year-old just so fast. I mean, he kind of acts
0: like a 14-year-old. Look what he had for
1: breakfast this morning. Like, a Mountain Dew, a Gatorade, maybe like a Cliff Bar somewhere in there, Coke Zero. Yeah. I'm like, you just need a pot of ice cream and a pizza and you're set. He's a guy that, that can eat a hot dog seven days a week, but then it's like, he'll want to do some, like, was it gastro special, blah blah
0: blah, but right. that's, that's just
1: what makes him just
0: so weird. That's all for this week, but there's so much more from our time with Will Zalatoris on our YouTube page. A friendly competition between him and Romo, the two of them teaching me how to chip, plus a look at his unique putting grip. You can watch it all at youtubecom bensinger You can also find our content on social media at Graham Bensinger. Before you go. Remember to leave us a rating and review. Also share your thoughts if you have time. Thanks again for listening.